Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Danny McLean, and Danny McLean is an incredible journalist, an incredible writer, and this conversation is incredibly exciting for me because it gets to why Explore the Space exists in the first place. Danny McLean wrote an article in The Nation a little over two years ago, and it was titled, What It's Like to be Black and Pregnant When You Know How Dangerous That Can Be. My wife actually found this article and she brought it to me and said, you need to have her on on the podcast. You need to have Danny McLean on Explore the Space. And it was different insofar as she had suggested people to me. This was, you need to have her on the show. This is why you're doing this. You have to invite her. And, you know, I've been able to source episodes and guests from all sorts of different directions. And this was really exciting to be able to have that connection and to sort of see how important it was to her to then read the article myself and say, this is why Explore the Space exists. This is looking at an important issue in healthcare, looking at the maternal health crisis for African-American women in the United States from the perspective of somebody who writes about it as a reporter and also lived it. And this was just extraordinary. The conversation was amazing. We dove into the article. She really helps us to understand the obstacles, the barriers, the fears and anxieties in a way that for me was just just incredible. And I'm so grateful to her for coming and sharing so openly and profoundly. We also talk about her new book titled, We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. And that book just came out last month. This is a very special conversation. I think everyone is going to really enjoy it. It's provocative. It's challenging. She is a leader in work that is so important. And this is the sort of work that helps us to increase our understanding, our sensitivity, and to develop a playbook to make it better. Before we get to the episode, I want to please invite everybody to come check out the website for Explore the Space. The archive is packed with lots of other great episodes with incredible guests, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we're there. Please leave a rating and a review for Explore the Space on whichever platform is your favorite, and please make sure you subscribe because we've got lots more good content coming. Like I said, this is a very special conversation. I'm so grateful to Danny McLean for coming on the show, and without further ado, Danny McLean. Danny, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. There's a phrase that I like, and friends of mine know that I like it and colleagues know that I like it and people who listen to explore the space know that I like it. And, and the phrase is stepping into the tension. And it's something that has informed what I try to do in everyday life at work on my podcast. And it's, it's basically looking at where are our comfort zones and, and being deliberate and intentional about getting out of those comfort zones. Because when we do that, that's where we can really learn and where we can engage and just broaden our horizons around everything. I will thank you. I will open the show by thanking you because your writing has afforded me and hopefully lots of other people that opportunity. Uh, my wife brought me a copy of an essay that you wrote in February of 2017. And the essay title it was in the nation was what it's like to be black and pregnant when you know how dangerous that can be. And when I read that title, I said, this is, 
this is uh, this is going to be stepping into the tension for me, <laughs> and I, I'm excited to do it. Let's just start from the beginning. You, your training is incredible. Your writing is superb. You could tackle anything you wanted. You, you, you have the nation saying, write for us, create content for us, and we're going to put it out to the entire audience that the nation has. There, there must have been things, there must have been buttons, there must have been some fire to say, this is what I'm going to write about, what it's like to be black and pregnant when you know how dangerous that can be. Well, first of all, thank you. That's um, very generous and complimentary. I, it's um, very kind of you to say to say all that. So I have been covering reproductive justice organizing for the past six or seven years. And so what that means is that uh, at the end of 2012, I got a fellowship to start reporting on reproductive rights. And, um, you know, when I, when I started the beat, I was I looked around to see how other reporters were covering that beat. And really what people were doing mostly was covering abortion, access to abortion and contraception. And I thought, okay, well, that's very important, but I know that there's more here. And um, I was interested in, you know, figuring out a way to take on the beat uh, in a unique way and from kind of a new perspective. And so I started interviewing, I started talking to a lot of black organizers, mostly black women in the reproductive rights space. And they introduced me to this framework called reproductive justice, which is a human rights framework that was created by black women um, and really been advanced by women of color. It's created 25 years ago. Um, and what it, what it asserts is that, you know, we, we have a human right to have a child, to not have a child and to parent the children that we have in safe and healthy communities. And so I, that kind of just opened up so much for me because I thought, oh, right now, in terms of news coverage and in terms of kind of public discourse, we're really focused on the right to not have a child. But what would it mean to create a beat in which, alongside talking about abortion and contraception, I'm also talking about the right to have a child and to parent those children in safe and healthy communities. And so I learned a ton from these mostly Black women, um, but I would say women of color more broadly, who I started developing as sources and started building relationships with and doing the incremental work of uh, reporting on their various campaigns and their policy initiatives and that kind of thing. And so then fast forward to summer of 2016, I'm in my third trimester with my first child, and I decided that I wanted to start reporting a story about the black maternal health crisis. So I had heard the statistics. I knew that black women uh, you know, are three to four times more likely than white women to die from childbirth-related uh, complications. But I, I wasn't seeing a lot of writing about uh, or reporting on why that was, like why, you know, why. And so um, because at that point, I was interfacing with the medical community because I was pregnant and I was, you know, had my prenatal appointments and had gone through the experience of trying to find a good OB, um, interviewing doulas, all that kind of thing. I had my own experience as a black woman uh, preparing for pregnancy and birth or preparing for birth at that point. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper under the stats and better understand how what I was experiencing was connected to this larger crisis and really what I needed to do in order to keep myself safe. So that's kind of the the origin story uh, behind that article. I'm so glad that you did it. You and I were talking a little bit before we started recording just around the genesis of Explore the Space and why I wanted to create the show. And it's recognizing that over the course of time, virtually everybody will come in contact with healthcare in some way. 
and that there can be real disconnects and real misperceptions and real, you know, deep seated problems with the way that things are perceived, the way things are delivered, the way things happen, and also wonderful successes too, it should be said. Mm-hmm. Your essay framed so much of that for me. There were times where I kind of had to stop. There was a few places that it was difficult to read. Um, it's interesting though, the, the place that I want to start with is when you describe walking into the office, when you describe just going into the OB's office in Dayton, Ohio, and then you mentioned that there were some other specialists that you saw over the course of your pregnancy, that paragraph is, is hard to read. Mm. Um, it's brilliant. It's not hard to read because it's not well written. <laughs> it's really hard to read. And I, 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 let me ask you, as you hear me, I'm, I'm a Caucasian male physician telling you that it's hard to read. I, I'm just curious, d- what do you think about it might be hard for me to read? And were you intentional about trying to, to access that? Hmm, that's so interesting. Um, well, let's see. So, yeah, I think it's important to say that um, when I when I was pregnant, I had recently moved back to the Midwest from Oakland, California, where I lived for six years. And so, um, as you know, because you're there in the Bay Area, um, it's a very racially um, and ethnically diverse part of the country. It's very politically progressive. Some might call it a bit of a progressive bubble. Um, and when I was in the Bay, there were, I knew I was friends with women of color, um, midwives. So many people were having home births and there were like all these, um, you know, freestanding birthing centers where you could go to have your kid. And so when I moved back to the Midwest, back to Cincinnati, that's what I was used to. And so I started this search for like, ideally I wanted a black midwife. I couldn't find that. I realized that home birth here is very frowned upon and considered, you know, outside of the legal structure. And you're assuming all this responsibility if you decide to kind of do that. And I just wasn't all the birth workers who I would have had access to if I, you know, had had my child in the Bay, I didn't have access to that here um, in the Midwest. And so I think that paragraph that you're describing, um, and probably, you know, so what I did was I eventually settled on I tried to get as close to what I wanted as possible. So there's a uh, a birthing center inside of a hospital in Dayton, a midwifery practice. And I decided, and if you, you know, it's the way it's set up, it's like beds and they have the room set up like a, you know, a, a bedroom. So it's with birthing pools and all these things. So it's as close to a home birth as, as you can get. And so um, I, I ended up going with that practice. And, but then early in my pregnancy, I was told that I had fibroids and maybe we could talk about that, um, you know, more in a bit, but I ended up having to work with one of their OBs rather than a midwife. And, but regardless, everyone in the practice was white. Um, there were no doctors or midwives or nurses or front desk people of color, all white. And so probably, you know, if I remember that paragraph correctly, I'm describing what it felt like to go into this environment where, I wasn't sure how I'd be perceived, you know, um, this was before the election of 2016, but you know, it, I'm from here. So I know politically what it's like. It's, it's a very conservative part of the country. I, at the time wasn't married. I was engaged. Um, so I didn't know what kind of assumptions might be made about 
who I was as like this unmarried black woman having a baby. So I talk in the, in the essay about, like I said, I was engaged. So I, I made sure to put on my engagement ring before I went into all of my prenatal appointments. I didn't wear it all the time, but I certainly put it on before I went to my doctor's appointments. I also have, you know, natural or unprocessed hair and I wear my hair in a bunch of different ways. And so sometimes I might have my hair in cornrows. Sometimes I might have my hair picked out in an afro. Sometimes I might have my hair flat ironed so that it looks like a more kind of conventional bob. And so I also thought about how am I going to be perceived based on how I'm wearing my hair? You know, I have two fancy degrees or like two degrees from a fancy place from an Ivy League uh, university. I've, you know, I'm very privileged in terms of education. And um, I don't know if my bank account would kind of say this, but I consider myself middle class. I have middle class experiences, regardless of what my real kind of financial state is, uh, you know, currently. But I knew that none of that mattered, that I would be perceived as a black black woman. Um, and I just didn't know what the people responsible for my care would make of that, what kind of meaning they would make of my blackness, of my unmarriedness, of my Afro. And because my primary concern is staying safe and having a, a healthy pregnancy and birth, I wanted to do everything that I could to uh, try to ensure that I would get quality care. So if we can you know, we've gone back into that office visit and, and you laid out all of those pieces. And, you know, we started off by me saying, having this conversation with you for me is stepping into tension. And I realize how silly and trivial that sounds now. This is a phone interview. And for you, you have to step into the tension where you're going to see the physicians and the team and the nurses and the, and the midwives that are going to help you have a safe and healthy pregnancy. And you have to have that much anxiety and fear and concern about perception I, I feel like that's the place where we need to spend some time and that that's where the real levers are going to be pulled because you can see the ripple effect, right? You have that arsenal of things that at least allowed you to move through the door and to go through the process. Right. I would imagine there's plenty of people who for reasons of their own, and I wouldn't even try to list them or perceive what they might be, wouldn't even go in, wouldn't even try to mm. access care or would mm -hmm. delay their care or mm -hmm. yeah or don't have you know I had private insurance I had yeah. good insurance yeah. like you know um yeah there are lots of reasons why and I don't struggle with addiction I like have money that allows me to buy good groceries you know I I didn't have anything to feel ashamed about right I think some people get in conversations with their providers yeah. where they're being asked all these questions and sometimes they feel like they can't be honest I'm also right. like slim, you know, my build is slim and athletic. So I wasn't expecting to feel any shame or like I, I didn't get shamed around obesity. Like a lot of the things that I hear from women of color and black women who have to have these interactions with providers while they're pregnant, they're getting just kind of asked these questions that they don't feel comfortable answering. Honestly, um, those were things that I didn't have to deal with. It almost feels like there's an inventory of these things that you have to go through this, this kind of macabre mental gymnastics of okay mm -hmm. which boxes am i checking so i'm going to be perceived correctly so that i get the right care right and that is just it's so far off from where we all are supposed to be and i would also say where we and when i say we i would say people on the on the other side of the equation people trying to provide care of where we think we are mm -hmm. how, how would you describe that disconnect both from your own experiences your experience as a journalist working on this beat that as you say right the corner is pretty open you you can plant your flag and, and really get after it and then also just from conversations that you have with other reporters friends families 
how big is the disconnect? And, and, uh, and, and then we're going to get to the bridging materials to close it. Uh I think it's hard to know how big the disconnect is. I mean, so, so, you know, one of the things that was happening while I was getting prenatal care and while I was pregnant is that I was reporting this story on maternal health. So I had in my head all these stats, right? Like I had read this um, 2016 University of Virginia study that found that about half of white medical students and residents held at least one false belief about biological difference between black and white people, right? So I'm reading this study that's telling me that not just like your average person on the street, but people training to be doctors, residents, hold beliefs such as black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. And you cite that one, actually, I remember you, you put yeah. that in the article. That was a, that was a, a palm slap to the forehead for me. Yeah, when so, I read, like, you, you know, but I remember, I mean, I'll be honest, I remember the, the board exam questions, and this is actually a, a subject of debate right now, is how are questions being formulated to medical students and residents when we're studying, you know, physi- pathophysiology and physiology of disease, and how do we how are these questions being written where they say this is a 58 year old African-American male, blah, 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 blah. Well, are are we sure we're doing this right? Are we feeding Mm -hmm. implicit bias when we do this? I don't mean to get too far afield, but these are very real tensions that we look at in your article. I was very perceptive to pick up on that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I mentioned that study to say that I have all this like research in my mind as I'm going into these appointments, you know, I don't know if I am, you know, if I'm getting a, a an exam from a doctor who never was around black people in his life and like watches Fox News all day and like has all these kind of stereotypes and, you know, around who I am as a black woman. So I, I actually I think it's hard to know what the disconnect is. But I think that what we do know as there's been like more and more reporting and more journalism focused on the black maternal health crisis is that implicit bias does play a role. You know, when you have somebody like Serena Williams talking about not being listened to, you know, saying, you know, she, she knows that she has this history of blood clots, but her doctor is not listening to her or the people attending to her. I don't know if it was her doctor or nurses or what, but the people attending to her are not really hearing her as she's describing her symptoms and trying to give them information about how her medical history might relate to what's happening. We know that this isn't about class, right? This isn't about poverty. This is about race and the ways that black people, black women are listened to. Um, And so, you know, I think it's quite important that as we have more and more coverage of the black maternal health crisis, that implicit bias on the part of medical providers is really being lifted up as part of the problem. Do you think that the disconnect, and I remember, I'm a huge tennis fan. I was a sports writer back in the day. Tennis is still my game. I'm a huge Serena Williams fan, just like everyone else. She wrote a lot about her experiences. And I remember when she was also critically ill several years ago when she first had a PE and then she bled. She wrote very honestly about her experiences when she had her child. The, the, the thought comes to me, and this was actually described in a previous episode by one of my physician colleagues who is an infectious disease physician in Nebraska. Her name is Jasmine Marcellin. This idea of making sure our parents know that we are taking them seriously, mm. that, we are, that they are being heard. We're not necessarily going to agree right? We, we're going to work hard to come up with shared decision-making, but at least know that we're taking you seriously and we're not disengaging from what you're saying. 
Mm-hmm. As I'm listening to you, my concern is that the implicit bias that you described that you describe in the paper, and there's more and more awareness of, I would say, in healthcare, is a real driver of a perception and probably a reality of patients who are minorities or any patient really feeling like they're not being taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because as you say that I'm remembering, so I just, you know, I have this book out now that, that builds on that essay that we're discussing. Yes, you um, do. The essay is the foundation for the first chapter of the book. Right, and so right, right. I've been on tour. Let's plug it with- now. We live for the <laughs> we, the political power of black motherhood. It came out, it came out a few weeks after I had emailed you to talk about this. So we're going to, st- we're going to focus on the essay, but we're going to drive people to this book because the book is, the book is important. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. So I've been um, on the road, you know, touring the book and uh, I've encountered a lot of black women, young black women who are saying, I'm terrified of having a kid. Like I am even reconsidering whether I want to give birth because all of this coverage makes me feel like I'm going to die. I like, I'm not going to be able to survive this. And so that has been a real eye opener. Um, because I never really thought that the increased coverage would be affecting people's reproductive decision-making in this way. And for me to hear, you know, a number of young black women saying like, I'm not doing this because I'm afraid that because my, I'm basically assuming at this point that I'm going to have a negative experience and I'm going to have a problem and my doctors are going to treat me negligently. That is really, it's made me think a lot as a journalist and storyteller about how I'm telling these stories and wanting my colleagues who are also reporting on these issues to think about the impact, you know, think about the potential impact of our stories and and really hold it with a lot of care because this new, you know, my story came out uh, in early 2017. After that, we had the ProPublica and NPR series on Black maternal health. We had the incredible New York Times Magazine cover story by Linda Villarosa about Black maternal health. Like the past two years have brought all of this increased coverage. And I think it's really important to, yeah, I, I think your question is a good one. Like there, what is the perception on the part of patients about how they're going to be treated by their providers? And as a proxy to that, and this will sort of timestamp when you and I are recording, yesterday on NPR, it was reported in the CDC issued a public statement that the U.S. birth rate is the lowest in 32 years. Mm. Now, whether this is the sole driver of it, I'm sure we could argue that this is a multifactorial decline, but this is part of it. I mean, you just said there's people who are saying, I don't think I'm going to have children because I fear a negative experience. I fear a threat to my health or I feel that I fear death. We have, I think we're defining some, some real work and, and one hopes at least an opportunity for improvement. If we're going to try to look at this with the kind of a framework of a growth mindset. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fact that a lot of millennials and, you know, young people don't feel like they can't afford kids is Uh a big issue. I also think, you know, um, the people realizing people being in relationships where they realize that the, the kind of labor, you know, the, the, the way the interaction between, gender and and domestic labor is such that like as a woman am I do I really want to try to have a job outside of the you know have a job and also be largely responsible for what's happening at home and raising a kid and I think there are a lot of things that are driving people away from wanting to to have kids but I but um yeah I think it's I think that this might be a factor as well I'm really I I think it might be too soon to tell but I'm really curious about that I agree but if we drill a little bit further into what you were saying right the feedback that you were getting you're sort of doing 
interview-based research and collecting stories, which is incredibly powerful and and really engaging. I, I would love to see prospective work of what are those fears specifically? Are you afraid that we yeah. don't have the technology? Is it the, is it a, is it afraid a fear that we, that 21st medical century technology is inadequate? Is it what is it even getting more granular because that's when we can start to drive education. I, I'm going to say it's not fear that we lack the technology. We have it, you know what I mean? Um, but there's a disconnect in, in, in somewhere in this algorithm and that we really need to tease out so that we can begin to educate and and reframe things so that from the moment you get out of your car to walk into the OB's office and even further upstream the decision, I want to think about having a child in America, mm-hmm. there, there's clearly some work to be done. Absolutely. And one of the things that was interesting to me as I was doing the reporting was I I was really curious about what does work, like what does Uh make pregnant and birthing people feel comfortable. And so there's a, I I touch on this in the essay, but I get into greater depth uh, in the book where I'm really focused on black birth workers, because if a big issue here is implicit bias and people don't feel safe or they feel they have a lot of hesitation around uh, seeing OBs or working with midwives who don't look like them, then how does the experience change if they are seeking out black o- black birth workers, black OBs, black midwives, or a black doula even just to be a birth assistant? And that's where I started to really hear about kind of the importance for many people of cultural congruence, feeling like they're working with someone who they can speak freely with, who does see them as, uh, you know, fully a human being who knows that they feel just as much pain as anybody else. And that's a really powerful term, cultural congruence. I was introduced to that phrase by, um, Anaya Shangodele, who's a, um, a midwife in the DC area. And she talked about how, so she's part of a midwifery practice in the DC area. And she's one of two black midwives there. And I think there might be like a dozen midwives total. And she said, you know, they'll do kind of their open house, um, where families expectant parent families will come in and all the midwives kind of give their spiel. And she said, when that's over, all the black families line up to speak to her or the other midwife. And it's because that's what, and I get it. I did the same thing, except usually there wasn't anyone there for me to go talk to um, when I would go to these open houses. But yeah, it's like, that's what people are seeking out that cultural congruence, that sense that I am going to be able to talk to you. And so a couple of the, you know um, the, the practical examples that she gave was, if a family actually is struggling with food security and they need to be able to tell their midwife, we, I don't ha- you're telling me all these healthy foods that I should get. I actually can't afford that. Or I do smoke marijuana. Um, do I need to stop or like, how can I use it safely? Or my partner and I, I am experiencing domestic violence or my partner and I fight. However, someone might put it. These are the examples of what she gave me. These are some examples that she gave me where she finds that her client's, may feel more comfortable saying these things to her, they would not feel comfortable saying it to a white provider. And then she also talked about because she is a black woman and she understands just the daily stressors, right? Like what we experience from experience, from dealing with structural racism and just like microaggressions, right? Like daily kind of indignities and disrespect that we face because she's a black woman and she knows about the relationship between stress and you know, cortisol, you're the doctor, so we can talk about, you know, I'm curious to to learn more from you about the kind of physiological impacts of stress, but we know that they're real, right? She is tuned into these clients, her patients and saying, 
I'm going to measure your belly. I'm going to weigh you. I'm going to do the exam and everything. But let's also just take a moment to breathe together. Let's wow. also just take a moment for you to tell me what, what has been hard this week. Yeah. Let's take a moment for me to show you a few asanas or poses that might um, help you relax. Right. So these are other examples of kind of why cultural congruence can be important and, and really why a lot of people of color, black women in particular, that's what I, that's what I focus on, are seeking out um, providers who look like them. But you in, in, in writing the essay, in writing the book, in us talking about cultural congruence, I, I'm actually feeling heartened in a way because you are laying out the playbook. You just gave okay. us the answers to the test. Right. So we have to be able to approach this with that growth mindset with, look, we want to get better. We want to reach the, the, the goals that we aspired to when we entered this profession. You just gave us the answers, right? We don't have to go do the research. You just told us what needs to happen. So I'm curious, you write the essay, the book is a couple of months old now since it's, since it's been released. Are you getting interest, engagement, pushback from People in medicine, physicians, healthcare organizations, what sort of reception, if any, are you getting from people on my side of the equation? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so I did an interview with a pediatrician who was really interested in my book. Um, she she's she's a black woman who has black children, and so she's kind of you know she is a doctor, but I think she's looking at it um, more of just kind of being interested in what's good for black kids. Um, that was her interest in my book. I'm doing an event. I live in Cincinnati. Our infant and maternal mortality numbers are not good. I, I can't remember exactly what they are, but they're some of the worst in the country, I believe. And I, there's an organization here called Cradle Cincinnati, which is focused on turning some of those numbers around. And I'm doing an event with them in a couple of weeks. So I think, you know, I think that there's I'm getting interest from the the medical community. I I think, you know, right now, so I think it was last week, um, Cory Booker and Ayanna Presley proposed some new bill related to black maternal health. Senator Warren, as part of her uh, platform, um, you know, laid out this kind of plan related to punishing hospitals with bad outcomes and, and rewarding those that have positive outcomes or that improve. Um, Senator Harris has a a proposal. So, you know, and a lot of these have to do with implicit bias training for doctors and better reporting. So we better understand exactly what women are dying from. Um, there, there are all these kind of policy proposals swirling right now. This is happening obviously at the political level, what I would think was some input from the medical community. And I think that that's, that that's heartening as well. What is your appetite for it? Because you've done a lot of hard work already, and your hard work, I might suggest, has put the opportunities into specific relief and helped us better understand where our current state is. So now, right, you also you, you are one of those people who knows a lot of the answers to the test, and you also carry a lot of the structural tools that we'll need to to bridge and to build and to fill in gaps. What's your appetite for that work? You're also a new mom. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, what's my appetite for the work of like advocating for these policies or continue? I mean, yeah, my job of, is a reporter, of, so of reshaping I, I what this is going to be like of just the oh shaping the mm-hmm. the whole the whole journey. You know, you're going to have a part to play in this for sure. You you have a part to play in this. What's your what's your appetite for? What do you want your role to be now? The book is done. You're still writing. Um, you're mm-hmm. you're in your prime, and we're, we've got a lot of work to do. What's your what's your mm-hmm. thirst and your interest? Oh, interest. That's it. Wow. I haven't quite thought about that. I mean, I think of, you know, I'm a reporter, so I think my role is to continue telling these stories. Uh-huh. I think what excites me is lifting up the bright spots, right? I'm interested in kind of solutions oriented journalism. Like uh-huh. you find the answers by going where people are having positive outcomes. That's why Jenny Joseph, she's a midwife and outside of Orlando, Florida, her outcomes are incredible. And then that's why there are like New York Times stories being written about her and why I wrote about her. You mentioned her, at least in that essay that we've been talking about. You go where people have figured this out and you explain in clear language what they're doing that works. Um, you know, she talked about um, never turning anyone away from the front desk. It doesn't matter if they're underinsured. It doesn't matter if dealing with their Medicaid reimbursements is going to be a mess. You know, it doesn't matter if they um, whatever you say, come on in, we're going to listen to that. We're going to listen to the heartbeat today. You're going to know that your baby's okay, you know, um, or this, that this fetus is okay. And so my interest is in, there are so many stories to be told. And so my interest is in continuing to tell the human centered stories, but also follow the policy, you know, kind of break down what these proposals are so that we, as you know, so that the voters know where, which candidates are advancing the plans that make the most sense. Um, so I see my, my role as, as continuing to be, uh, as someone who's reporting on these issues. I like the way that you framed your role as a reporter, and I will ask you to help us to be more informed. You also commented on how the policy and the ideas are swirling, I think was the word that you used. I agree, (laughs) right? It's this, it's, it's like a watercolor with too much water. (laughs) Um, where are you looking for information? What are your sources so that, right, that, that are readily accessible that anyone else could find on social media or at the public library or on the internet to gather a sense of where reality is around this? Because it's so highly charged. It's highly charged socially. It's highly charged in every respect, politically, you name it. Do you have places as a reporter that you can suggest people can look when they are looking to make a better informed decision? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, that's a long pause. It wasn't well, like, yeah, wanna, check out CNN.com. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, you know, that's a, that you're giving me an opportunity to share resources. So I want to try to point people in the right direction. Um, Absolutely. I really noted that it was not CNN.com. <laughs> no, no. Um, because I think you have to go to the source, yeah, you know, so I'm, yeah. th- I'm thinking of the people who are doing the work who are also good communicators about yeah, the work. Right. Yeah. So Jenny Joseph is actually good. Like she's on, um, I mean, she's an amazing midwife, but also good about communicating about her work via Facebook and Twitter. There's the Southern birth justice network. There's a midwife named Jamara Amani. Honestly, I mean, this is going to just sound kind of self-promotional, but I would really encourage people to buy my book and to read that first chapter closely oh. because I list all of these incredible birth workers from Linda Jones in Oakland 
to um, Tamika Middleton in Atlanta. Like these are the voices who I think I'm capturing just a snapshot of their storytelling, but I think that we need to kind of consistently plug into and pay attention to their work so that we can learn from them. You, you beat me to the punch because actually what I was trying to do <laughs> was set this up that you're that person. And yeah. that we got it. Like that's why I wanted you on the show that this is where we now get to say, okay, you're, you're still working. You're, you're a busy mom. You're a reporter. You have a life, but yet I would suggest that we can position you as one of those real bellwethers that we can get the stories from the, 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 the frontline view from the good reporting, but also the, the thoughtful content on the humanistic side of this. Mm -hmm. Do you want that role? Yeah, sure. I want yeah. people to read my work. Yeah, Good. absolutely. Good. Um, so, you know, I would say my book is called We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. The Good first name chapter. Too. I love that name. Yeah, thank you. Um, and just a moment on that. So the title came from um, We Live for the We. The title came from an activist in Oakland named Kat Brooks. She ran for mayor of Oakland last year, actually. Um, but I was interviewing her and she was. Uh, we were, she has an old, her child is 12 and she was saying, um, you know, Kat is someone who works very closely with families who have lost someone to police violence. Um, and she kind of came to national attention because she supported the family of Oscar Grant, uh, after Grant was killed by, um, Johannes Meserly, a BART officer, a uh, Bay area rapid transit officer, uh, in January of 2009, Kat did a lot of support for their, for the family. And, um, so she spends a lot of time at protests and rallies and that kind of thing. And her daughter is with her. She, you know, her daughter tags along with her. And I was interviewing Kat and she said, you know, a lot of times my daughter will say like, do we have to go to that rally? Or like, do I have to go to that meeting? Or can we just do something, just the two of us? And she said, I tell my daughter all the time and it's harsh, but we don't live for the I, we live for the we. And when she said that, I, it just resonated with me because I had heard that um, sentiment from so many of the other black mothers and grandmothers who I interviewed for the book. And also what I was reading in the scholarship on black motherhood, whether it's from sociologist Patricia Hill Collins or Audre Lorde or, um, or Bell Hooks, all these people who have done serious you know, writing on black motherhood, this idea that black mothers often you know, they're not thinking just about their kind of nuclear family unit, as, you know, as being important. They're taking a more kind of holistic community view. We know that, you know, if my child is being mistreated at school um, and there's a teacher who's discriminating against her or if there's not a playground on my block, um, that's these aren't just problems for my child. These are problems for the community and for other black children as a whole. And so the title comes from that because it's my effort to really say that this is something that seems to be unique within black mothering is this idea that we take this kind of community perspective. And so, yes, the book is We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. And then there, you know, there are other reporters, as I mentioned, you know, ProPublica, Pro Nina Martin at ProPublica does great work, um, Linda Villarosa has traditionally covered HIV and AIDS, but she's a health reporter who did that beautiful story, the cover story at the New York Times Magazine. I think more and more people are realizing that, oh, this is a beat. Like we, there's a lot of work that needs to be done around um, birth, pregnancy and birth for black women and then more broadly black mothering. That's interesting that you say that the work that you've done has help people realize that this is a, a proper beat, right? We think about beat writing. I was a sports writer, right? So I, there's the sports beat, there's the Metro beat, there's the local and you you're defining a new 
freeway in journalism. And I think people are hopefully really going to gravitate to it. I hope so. Yeah, because there's a lot there. And of, uh, yeah, go ahead. One of the things that I like that you did there too, though, is, you know, when I, when I get to interview somebody who I feel like is that source, is that resource, and I want to get to that place, I like that you beat me to it. I like that you have internalized and see the value in what you're doing and feel comfortable saying it's me. I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to take that mantle. There's others too, but I'm I'm perfectly comfortable to say, yeah, come come check in with me and I will help you get the information that you need and get get where you need to go so that we can make this better. So I, I compliment you on that. That's not easy work, right? We talk about imposter syndrome a lot. Oh, You're yeah. very good at this. It would be very easy for you to be deferential and not want to plug your work or reference yourself in that way. And especially given that there aren't many people doing the work that you're doing, that you're willing to embrace that and say, yeah, it's me. I think that that's laudable. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah, I'm not shy about, I've put a lot of work into this. You know, I'm also an independent journalist, you know, a freelancer. So I'm doing a lot of this kind of without a ton of support and resources. And so, you know, I'm, when that New York times magazine story came out, they, she's got the power of the times behind her, which is why the photographs were so beautiful. And she's got, you know, incredible travel budget and all that. So I think it's also important to lift up, you know, the work that other people are doing, but yeah, this is, um, I've spent a lot of time. I've spent, you know, the past two decades, um, either, you know, connected to social justice organizing in some way. Um, and so over those 20 years, I have developed a really rich, uh, network of sources. And so it's my job to lift up the work that those people are doing. And I'm very happy to, you know, make the reproductive justice movement, um, more legible to the general public. Like a lot of people have never heard of reproductive justice organizing, but that's really what I'm talking about here. You know, reproductive justice organizers have long been talking about um, the black maternal health crisis, has, have long been talking about the role that black birth workers can play in, in dealing with these terrible stats that we hear about black birth outcomes. So my job is just to, you know, lift up the, the work that these folks are doing. You're doing that very well. And I would also suggest you are already paving the way for your next project and your next work because you had an article in Time Magazine a week ago and another incredible title and another amazing article. I won't let racism rob my black child of joy. You're, you're defining, right? You've got your life's work ahead of you, not just in being a mom, but in helping to frame what that journey is going to be like for, for the, we, for you, for your child Mm -hmm. and for everyone else. And you've got that big spotlight, right? You referenced New York Times. Well, you've got Time Magazine. And we know that these are the big platforms and the powerful megaphones that we need to really move the needle. Yeah. And um, I thank you for mentioning that article. You know, the one of the things that I was dealing with that summer of 2016 when I, you know, where we started the conversation, I was in my third trimester. I'm working on this story about uh, black maternal health. The summer of 2016 was the summer that Philando Castile um, was killed by, uh, police, um, St. outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. His girlfriend was in the, he, he was, this was a traffic stop. His girlfriend was in the passenger seat. His four-year-old was sitting in the back seat. Um, he's killed by police the next day, or maybe the day before that Alton Sterling was killed by police in Baton Rouge. Um, it was a summer where there were a lot of, it was a very hot summer in terms of like the rhetoric. There was a lot of kind of talk about black lives matter organizing being, 
you know, anti-police and that kind of thing. And I started to think about how anxious and fearful I was becoming as I watched the news. And as someone expecting a child, I was thinking about, you know, gosh, these uh, black folks are getting killed by police. The unarmed black people are getting killed by police. Philando Castile actually had a permit. He, he was armed. He had a permit to, to be armed. But, um, you know, or as I think about Tamir Rice, the 12 year old in Cleveland who was killed by police because he was holding a toy gun. I, the, I wrote that article in time that you mentioned, because it was my effort to acknowledge that black mothers, black parents, black families deal with an increased level of fear and anxiety when we think about how to keep our children safe. And, um, that article and much of my book is an effort to acknowledge that and also try to pass on tips for how we can manage our fears and anxieties without bogging our children down in, you know, um, in, in those fears to the, to the point where they can't just be kids. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and I think that's an extension of the conversation around black maternal health. Because if we're, we're fearful and we're anxious about what kind of experiences we're going to have during our prenatal appointments or when we give birth, you know, that then we feel fearful and anxious when we have a toddler who's having a meltdown in public because how are people going to look at us? Are they going to think we're a bad mom because we're black and we can't control our kids, whatever. When our kids get into school and they're navigating segregated schools and we're worried about the discrimination that they might face from, you know, teachers and administrators. I think that there's this kind of thread around fear and anxiety that black mothers face. And I'm, that's part of what I'm trying to do with my reporting and my journalism as well is to acknowledge that and to kind of uncover its roots and to get at some possible solutions. You're, you're doing the right work. It's, it's incredibly hard to read sometimes. So I can only imagine the toll that it takes on you to not just write it, but to live it. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. Uh, it's going to also be really interesting to follow your journey because you're, just paddling out into being a mom, <laughs> your mm-hmm. kid's almost three, uh, yeah. like mine. And it's, so that's a long road as well. And it's life changing and it's fun and it's scary in all those different ways. But what you're describing are fears and anxieties that are different. And, and we need to work very hard. As you said, we need to rally around the, we to try to make this better and to try mm-hmm. to move the needle and to do it and to do it at a tempo, right. To, to, to do this swiftly. Yeah. That's the hope. The book is incredible. The, the essays that you write are amazing. People are going to obviously listen to this and they're going to want access to them. They're going to want to read and to follow. How do they find you on social media? How do they find your website? How do they find the book? Yes. So let's see. I am on Twitter at Dr. McLean, um, D-R-M-C-C-L-A-I-N. I'm not a doctor. Those are my initials. Um, and my website is dannymcclain.com. Um, and the book is available at your local independent bookstore and online at all your, you know, major online booksellers. Thank you for and, shouting out um, the independent bookstore. <laughs> of course. I'm on Instagram at Danny underscore McLean. So I am, I'm, at, I'm on all your favorite social media uh, channels. Uh, find me there. And you're a great follow. I learn a ton from you. These essays have been incredibly impactful for me. I appreciate you accepting my invitation to come on the show. I'm not sure how many invitations you get to come on, physician run podcast, but I appreciate you taking this opportunity. This has been incredible for, for me. It's going to be a, a, a real opportunity for all of us to continue to dialogue and to connect and to, to have better shared understanding again, to try to make this better. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mark, for having me. This is uh, a pleasure. Thank you for listening to explore the space. 
visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.